better person. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit, or as the Bible says, the law of the Spirit that gives us power over the law of sin and death. Anybody thankful that you have the baptism of the Holy Ghost? And I want to let you know that the good news today is if you've never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit today before you leave this church service. You may say, well, preacher, how will I know if I've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? All I can tell you that is in the book of Acts, when people receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the first thing that happened is they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them the words to speak. This was the evidence that everybody else knew this person's been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, what happened then? Well, their lives were changed, and they suddenly had different desires and different appetites, and and, uh, the fruit of the Spirit began to show forth in their life, and they began to see miracles and the gifts of the Spirit in operation. But the initial evidence was that they had an experience with God, that they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and they began to speak in other tongues. Amen? And there was a... uh, uh, a male witch or warlock in the book of Acts that said that when he noticed that when the apostles laid hand, Peter and, and, and uh, uh, John, when they laid hands on people, they received the Holy Spirit. He says, I will pay you money to give me the gift so that I can lay hands on people and they will receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And the apostle Paul said, that's not how it works, buddy. You're going to miss out on everything if you think that that's how it works. Uh, but I'm just wanting to share with you that this person who was associated with Uh, the occult and with spiritual things recognized that there was something uh, transcendent about the power to see the Holy Spirit poured out. And the good news today is you can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and God will give you the power. I have some more good news is you can be refilled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You can have a fresh new experience with God and you can walk out of here on cloud nine because cloud eight ain't good enough. Amen. You can feel better than you've ever felt in a long time knowing that God's spirit is on you, knowing that his plan and purpose is being unfolded in your life. I'm going to tell you right now, the power of the Holy Ghost will make a difference in your life. The power of the Holy Ghost will change your life. Yeah. Because when when the angel appeared to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby, this baby's going to be something special because it's going to be the Christ child. Mary said, how shall this be, seeing as I know not a man? She said, how can I have a baby when I have never one time been intimate with a man? And guess what the response? This is a great miracle. Can we agree that that would be a great miracle? It would be a scary miracle if you became expectant and you had never known a man as, as, a, as a woman. How can a miracle like this take place, she's saying? How can this happen? And the response of the angel was, the Holy Ghost. So guess what? Anytime there's something impossible, but God gives you a promise, and you're saying how, the answer is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And just in case you are confused or misinterpret what we're talking about, when we say Holy Ghost, we're not talking about like something spooky or like Casper the Friendly Ghost. It's talking about the Spirit of God working amongst people. God is a spirit. That means God's invisible. 
We can't see God. No man had seen God at any time. But Jesus Christ made him visible when he was on the earth. But Jesus Christ, the God of creation, wants to show up in your life. How does it happen? Through this thing called the Holy Spirit. And you can receive that and begin walking with God today. Amen. That's good news, isn't it? If you have your Bibles, I want to read a verse for you, a few verses from Judges chapter number 6. Thank you, brother. Beginning in verse number 11. Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse number 11. It says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress, to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Verse 13. Look at that verse. An angel appeared to him and said, The Lord's with you. And Gideon's response, verse 13, if I had to sum up that whole verse in one little phrase, it would be, I don't believe you. Or I don't believe it. Can you agree with me there? That's what he's saying. If the Lord be with us, why is this happening? Where's all his miracles? Didn't they... Our fathers told us the Lord brought us up out of Egypt. All these great things happened. But now the Lord hath forsaken us, delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. In other words, I don't believe you. Verse 14, And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I want you to notice here in this passage of Scripture that God is specifically calling this man named Gideon. But He is calling him right in the midst of a crisis. Not only a crisis in Israel, but a crisis in his faith. And I want to speak to you for a few moments today on this subject called in a crisis. Sometimes the devil tries to use the fact that we have questions and there are some things that are unclear to us. To keep us from responding to the call of God or to cause us to feel like God can't use us or doesn't want to use us. But I've come here today to tear down strongholds. I've come here today to destroy what the enemy has established in your mind that keeps you from responding to the call of God and responding to what God wants to do in your life. In the name of Jesus, with the help of the Lord, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you today. For your mercy and kindness and the blessings you've given to us. We pray today for Life Church. Every ear, Lord God, that's in this place, let them hear the word of the Lord. But more than just hear, Lord Jesus, let them respond and receive and do, Lord God, according to the direction of your the spirit and the direction of your word. We pray, Lord God, for this so that your name would be glorified and exalted and that lives would be changed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And every person said, Amen. Amen. Put your hands together as you're seated. Be seated. Let's praise the Lord together. Hallelujah. Amen. This passage that I read to you this afternoon is in the book of Judges. And uh, 
The book of Judges, more than any other book, sometimes the book of Numbers is referred to this way, but the book of Judges, more than any other book in the Bible, is best referred to as the roller coaster period of the children of Israel. Because it is a span of time of 400 years between the time that uh, Moses and Joshua pass away and the first king, Saul, of Israel is anointed. So for 400 years from the leadership ministry of Moses and Joshua until the time that uh, Samuel anointed Saul as the first king of Israel was 400 years of roller coaster time. When I say roller coaster, I mean ups and downs. I mean high highs and low lows. Let me explain it to you right now. The reason the book is called Judges is that there were various men or women at certain times during this 400 years that God would raise up in order to bring Israel back to God. And so during this time, they would go through a period where this judge, a judge would come along and would restore the exclusive worship of Jehovah. And usually with that, there would be a destruction of idols, smashing of things called Asherah poles, which they used for idol worship. And they would basically cleanse the land of Israel, God's chosen people, of all the idolatry. And they would worship exclusively Jehovah. And they would focus on uh, the teachings of Moses. And they would submit to the law of God. But then... Over the passage of time, this would be a high time because God would bless them during this time. And they would have peace and they would reign uh, uh, kind of over the land, the promised land, Canaan's land. But then what would happen is that disobedience would creep back in slowly. And slowly, idols would be reestablished in Israel. And children of Abraham, God's chosen people, children of Israel, would begin to worship idols. This may not happen overnight. It may not happen in a year. But over a process, remember we're talking about 400 years now. So from a high point, they would descend into a low point to where all of the people were worshiping false gods and worshiping idols and they had rejected Jehovah and then with that would come the judgment of God, which would include these other people that were living with them in in the promised land, these other Canaanites, Midianites, Amalekites, Midianites, Grabbites, Pantsutites, all these other people living in the promised land, the Pickaphites and all these others, living in the promised land with the Hebrew people would rise up and take dominion over God's chosen people in their promised land because of their disobedience and because of their idolatry. And things would get bad. Things would get real bad until God's chosen people in this passage of Scripture are hiding out in caves, in dens, in the mountainside, and they're trying to plant crops. And then when the crops start to grow, in this, in this story in the book of Judges, as soon as the, the, the ground would bring forth, forth its increase, uh, then these roving, mo- uh, 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 roving groups of the Midianites and the Amalekites would sweep in And they would steal the increase of the ground and steal all the crops. And what happened is, the Bible says the children of Israel were greatly impoverished. They were starving. They didn't have food because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief, because of their idolatry. Then their neighbors would begin to rule over them. And then God would do it over and over and over again in 
the book of Judges. He would raise up a deliverer from among the people who would stand up and say, it's time for us to destroy all the false god, to tear down all the idols and the places of idol worship and return to worshiping Jehovah exclusively. And not only that, but together with this return to the, the purity of their submission to Jehovah, there would also be military victories that would come that would bring Israel back to their proper place of prominence within the promised land. And so it's a roller coaster period. It's obedience and dominion. It's disobedience and subordination to the other nations. Obedience because a judge would come along, bring them back to the top, and then that slow drift back to disobedience. So the 400 years between Moses and Joshua and the anointing of the king Saul is a roller coaster period of Jehovah worship and idolatry. Ups and downs, obedience, disobedience, idolatry, and Jehovah worship, being able to prevail over the cohabitants of the promised land and being prevailed over. And during these times, it was these judges, uh, people like Samson, Deborah the prophetess, Ehud, Shamgar, and Gideon, among others of these judges that would be raised up to bring Israel back to their true worship of the true God. And during these times, these people would raise up. And I can say that I wish that the church of the living God stayed in a constant state of revival. I wish we were always on the mountaintop. I wish we never had to fight worldliness. And I wish everybody was always praying. And I wish our Monday night prayer was as full as our Sunday services. And I wish early in the morning this place is hard to find a place to pray because there'd be so many people here. I wish everybody was living righteous and victorious over the enemy. But I found out in pastoring for a few years and living for God and observing that churches go through ups and downs. Churches go through periods of revival and times of drifting and worldliness and then a spirit of revival and then a time of drifting again. I found that this even happens personally in my life. Do I have anybody else that's a witness that I experience times of ups and downs and times of revival and times of crisis in my spiritual life and in the church? But during these times of crisis, what I've discovered is that revival often breaks forth from within. And when a church goes through a dry spell or through a lull, there will be somebody that God will rise up to spur revival, to declare righteousness, to promote evangelism and reach and serving and seeking God's will. Just like David, when he was a young man, he was a single adult, he was a shepherd. And uh, there was something in him when he brought those meats and cheeses out to his brothers there on the battlefield, when he looked, not even a trained soldier, just a young shepherd, but he observed this great behemoth of a man, Goliath, come out and challenge the armies of Israel. And when Goliath shouted, bellowed out his his challenge all the great warriors of israel trembled and their knees knocked together and they got intimidated and fearful and they were in hiding it was a time of crisis for israel because they were god's chosen people but they were intimidated and fearful but david was a young man 
And in the midst of this crisis, God called him. And with faith, he stood up and faced the challenge of Goliath and said, in essence, is there not a cause? There was something that stirred inside of him because he was an anointed young man of God. God had put an anointing on his life and the anointing has the power to destroy the yoke of the enemy. And David's courage and David's action and David's response sparked revival. Amen. It sparked revival because when he let go of the sling, anybody know the story of David and Goliath? He was spinning it. Uh, he didn't have a sword or a spear. He didn't have a shield. He didn't have all the, the, the most modern weapons. Uh, all he had was a, a, a sling and a stone. And when he released it, the stone sunk into the head in the, in the spot of uh, Goliath's face where he was uncovered and there he fell to the ground and David ran and got the sword and took off the head of this man that had defied the armies of Israel and when he did all of a sudden those great warriors of Israel who had been intimidated and had been fearful and had been backed up into the corner come running out from behind their trees and the rocks and the hiding places with their swords drawn and with a shout of victory coming out to go after the Philistines and it wasn't just a hand to hand combat between David and Goliath that day, but it was a great victory that was won for all of Israel. And I found out that when somebody gets anointed and somebody gets inspired and somebody gets courageous, not only does it make a difference in their situation, but they can spur an entire church to revival. Because it is the anointing that destroys the yoke. Now this example that we read in your hearing about Gideon, God's people were oppressed by their enemies, the Midianites, and they were hiding out in caves in the mountainside. The increase of the crops were stolen and their morale was destroyed. They were fearful and intimidated. And we see Gideon, when this story begins, he is threshing wheat, hiding behind the wine press. Because Israel is in a crisis and God is preparing to call a deliverer. But what I want to bring to your attention today is that not only was Israel in a crisis, but Gideon, the one that God was calling, was in a crisis as well. As he's hiding out, threshing wheat, and the angel says, Gideon, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon's response was, if the Lord be with us, why is this bad stuff happening? And where's the miracles that our parents told us about? Gideon said, in essence, I'm having a hard time believing this Jehovah story right now. I've heard it from my parents. I've heard it from those who've seen miracles themselves. But I've never seen a miracle. And I've never seen God deliver His people. And I have trouble believing the stories. See, Gideon was in something that we could call a faith crisis. He said, I want to believe I've heard the stories, but my experiences don't match my beliefs. And there was doubt, there was unbelief, there were questions in the mind of Gideon as he was being called of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm willing to be honest with you today and let you know that in my experience with God, I have experienced faith crises. I have gone through times where I have questioned the things of God in my mind. Not because I'm snotty, not because I'm trying to be arrogant, but because I truly want to believe 
in the God that I, my parents believed and in the God that the preacher tells me about uh, and in the God that we pray to. But in my mind, there are questions that are warring against what I want to know as true. And this experience of going through questions like this, of wanting to believe one thing and having a set of beliefs that's being challenged by questions that are working in your mind is something called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. What is that? Cognitive dissonance is a, a, a frustrating experience that happens when you have two competing beliefs. You're trying to believe one, but you're struggling with questions that are produced by this other set of beliefs in your mind. And it brings a tremendous amount of stress to you because you'll find yourself torn trying to figure out what it is that you believe. This cognitive dissonance or crises of a person's faith is a very real real thing that a lot of people go through, especially people that were raised in church, especially particularly people that were raised or spent a long time around the things of God. And I want to share with you that in my experience growing up as a Christian, moving into adulthood, I have experienced uh, some faith crises in my life. The reason I want to share this with you is because I know how the devil works. And I know how he likes to use the fact that people are going through a faith crisis to cause them to question whether or not it's worth it to go on living for God. Because they're struggling with some questions. Because some things are working in their brain against the faith that they want to hold on to. And the devil will try to use that to back you into a corner. To get you to walk away with, from God. Or to get you trapped in some bad habits of sin. And cause you to lose out with God and, and uh, or at the very least sit in your pew and do nothing for God. How can I work for God? How can I make a difference in this world when I have to struggle with these questions? I want to tell you today that going through a process of questions is a natural part of spiritual growth. Uh, and don't let the devil use this experience uh, of a cognitive dissonant faith crisis uh, to steal from you the opportunity to respond to the call of God and be anointed for God's purpose in your life. See, because I grew up in a church where I experienced the power of God. I, see, I saw people filled with the Holy Ghost. I saw drug addicts delivered from drug addiction. Amen. I saw marriages that were uh, on the rocks be restored through the power of the Holy Ghost. I saw miracles of healing. Amen. I saw uh, a, a lady whose foot was short, uh, leg was shorter than the other. I saw it grow out. I saw this all right before my eyes. And I had uh, experienced the power and the presence of God. I received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues for myself. But when I went through my college experience, uh, I found myself battling, holding on to my faith when all of the secular humanism that I was being exposed to at school brought me a tremendous amount of frustration because on the one hand I come to church on Sunday and I believe what the preachers preach and I believe what I believe I believe what I feel I believe what I'm experiencing but then Monday I am hit with this barrage of, uh, of human philosophy that starts working in my brain and I found myself let me be honest with you I found myself so frustrated with that experience that I would lie in my bed at night so mad at myself tears running down my face why can't I believe God and I thought I was on the pathway to heresy. I thought I was going to walk away with from God because I had these questions and I was struggling with these issues in my mind. It was a faith crisis that I had to go through. And guess what the devil did? The devil tried to convince me 
that because I had gone through this crisis, that my faith was going to be debilitated and weakened to the point that God could never use me the way that I had hoped that I could be used of God. And that because I had struggled with some questions about the very existence of God, that as a result of that, that uh, there was no anointing like could have been available for me. And that I would never have my faith strong again. I'd go through the rest of my life on shaky, wobbly, weak faith if I did happen to make it. That was what the devil was telling me, and that's what was frustrating me to the point of tears. But I want to tell you right now, can you, can you listen to me right now, that I came through my faith crisis in my second year of college, and when I came through my faith crisis, rather than my faith being weaker than it was before I was faced with those questions, I came through the trial, and my faith was strengthened because it had been tried. And I want to tell somebody today that you can go through your faith crisis. You can face the questions. You can face the trials. And you can come through on the other side and not just make it, but be anointed. Not just make it, but have God's power in your life. See, here's the interesting thing about the story of Gideon. Is that right in the middle of his faith crisis, he is called to do something for God. The call of God in a faith crisis. It seems counterintuitive that these two would come at the same time. Wouldn't you think that God's call would come when everything's established and everything's settled? Wouldn't you think that the call of God would come only to those who are full of confirmation of their belief in God? But rather, we see in this story that God calls Gideon right in the middle of a faith crisis. And I want to tell you that the devil understands, amen, the devil understands that if he can use the faith crisis to keep you from responding to the call of God, then he can defeat what God wants to accomplish in your life. But God also understands that if you can embrace the call of God right in the middle of a crisis of your faith, then he can use you in ways that nobody else can be used. You can go through the fire and you can face trials and difficulties and God can use you because you embraced and responded to the call of God right in the middle of a faith crisis. The Bible says that our trials worketh patience. Untried faith is weak and susceptible. But when you go through the trial, when you come through the faith crisis and you still believe God and you believe God's going to use you, then you become a terror to Satan. You bring fear and strike fear into the heart of the enemy. Amen. And I, I went through uh, another faith crisis when I was uh, in my third year of, of school. I was going to a, uh, a Christian-based university. And uh, I was around a lot of wonderful people, a lot of really nice, great Christians who did not believe the essentiality of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, didn't believe the necessity of being water baptized in Jesus' name. They didn't believe the book of Acts, gospel message that the apostles preached because of their Christian tradition. And as a young man, going to school with all these nice people, I came to this crisis point. And the crisis point for me was either I believe this message or I don't. I'm not going to live the rest of my life 
for a lie. I've been raised in the truth. I've been raised in this church that believes this. My dad doesn't have a doctorate degree. My pastor what hasn't been to all these theological seminaries. And here I am with these people with doctorate degrees. And they're telling me that there's three persons in one God. And they're telling me that uh, all you have to do is believe. There's no need to be water baptized or spirit baptized. And, and that your lifestyle really doesn't have to tra- change or transition all that much. Maybe your mind a little bit. And here I am in the midst of this trying to figure out what do I believe and I remember hitting the wall of the faith crisis as a young man listen to me right now and when I hit the wall in this faith crisis guess what I did I went into my room and I got out my Bible and I got a bunch of books and I said I'm going to prove to myself that the doctrine of the Trinity is the truth because I if all these people believe this I'm not going to spend the rest of my life believing something if it's just what my parents believed or it's just what the people around me believe. And I sat in that room and I studied and I went through this personal faith crisis. And and if I'd have talked and told people what was going through my mind right then, they may have thought I was a heretic. But the point was I was going to sit down and find out what I really believed. And I remember on the third day, three days, see some other things that happened. I'm not going to share it all with you, but some people had come into the church that I'd won from the school and then they turned against it because of the exclusivity of the apostolic doctrine. And there I sat in that room. What do I believe? And I studied the scriptures and I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget that moment when tears started pouring down my face as I looked at the word of God and I began to speak these words. Jesus is God, period. Jesus is God, period. Jesus is the living God. Jesus is the creator manifest. But it was through the faith crisis, through this crisis in my faith, that I came to that point of committing myself. Amen. Amen. And you can be called by God in the midst of these crises. Another crisis that happens is when I see people that I love and respect walk away from truth to find an easier way to serve God and live for God. And I'm like, am I missing something? What's going on here? These crises of faith cause me to dig in and find out what it is that I really believed. And the Bible says, think it not strange when, when the trials come. The reality is these trials will make your faith stronger. And I want to tell you today that the trial of your faith was not sent to disqualify you from ministry. But the trial of your faith was in fact sent to qualify you to do what God wants you to do. And the devil is a liar. And the devil wants to intimidate you and back you up. The devil wants to silence you. The devil wants to handcuff you. But I want to tell you right now that the trial of your faith wasn't sent to destroy you. It was sent to define you. It was sent to bring you out of where you are and let God's anointing flow through your life. People go through the faith crises. Maybe go through different ones. Why did this happen? Why did I have to experience this? Why wasn't this prayer answered? Why did this person treat me that way? They're supposed to be a Christian. Why did this, these types of faith crises that you go through are not meant to destroy you? But I want to tell you that God can call you to do something for the kingdom of God right in the midst of a faith crisis. See, if I was God, I could think of a lot better time to put a call on my life. But God knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing. Amen? 
Because guess what Gideon said? Gideon said, where's this God that my parents talked about? Where are these miracles that I've heard about? God, if you want me to work for you, if you want me to do what you want me to do, then I need you to show up for me in my life. It's not enough that you work in behalf of my father or my grandpa or those that crossed the Red Sea. I need to see your power. I need you to demonstrate your glory. Show me your glory. The very faith crises that Satan designed to drive you away from God can be the very thing that drives you to your knees and say, God, show me your glory. I don't know. I kind of believe that's what separates the called from the chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. The called are those that respond to the initial moving and wooing of God's Spirit. But then through the trial of the faith, the chosen are the ones. The called are the ones that use that as an excuse to walk away from God. Let the enemy intimidate them into walking away from God. But the chosen are the ones that use that as the opportunity to say, God, I need to see your glory. Hey, man, i got to see your glory. I need to see you for myself. And this is what Gideon said. Gideon said, God, show me your glory. And so God showed him his glory. by the, He put his little meal out on the rock, and fire came from heaven to prepare or cook that meal. Gideon said, all right, here's what I want to do. I'm going to take a fleece of lamb's wool. I'm going to lay it out on the ground. And uh, I, I don't know the order, whether it was the, the first way or the second way, but all I know is he did two different things. He said, God, tomorrow in the morning I want the ground the, 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 the grass of the ground to be sopping wet, but I want the fleece to be dry. And he woke up in the morning, and God supernaturally allowed that to happen. And Gideon said, okay, just to make sure I didn't get this wrong, tomorrow when I wake up, I want the fleece to be sopping wet with water, and I want the ground to be dry. He was saying in his own way, show me your glory, God. He was saying in his Old Testament perspective, show me your glory, God. He was getting down to business with God. And he woke up the next morning. The ground was dry. The fleece was sopping wet. See, Gideon was about to do something powerful for the kingdom of God. He was about to bring them out of a slump of spiritual depravity into a spirit of revival. God had called him to do a work for him. And I want to tell you, in these last days that we live, we need some men and women that are anointed of God. We don't need some people that are playing church and just going through the routine and live in one way on Sunday and another way through the rest of the week. We need some people who are committed, sold out, fully committed and on fire for God. And so once Gideon had this experience, once Gideon had this confidence in God, then he was ready to go with only 300 men to fight the host of Midian that numbered in the tens of thousands with 300 men and a word from God. He had the courage to go. He wasn't going to go until he got his questions answered. He wasn't going to go until he got a, a confirmation from God. Amen? And sometimes we look down on that. But I want to tell you, God doesn't mind you saying, I need to see your glory. I need to see you for myself. I can't just go on what happened to this person or in that church or what happened 20 years ago or 40 years ago. God, I'm going to get in the prayer room until I see it for myself. I'm going to speak faith from my mouth until I see it for myself. Show me your glory. It was that very faith crisis 
that pushed Gideon to the point where he said, God, I've got to see your glory. You know, doubting Thomas, he gets a bad rap, doesn't he? He was one of the disciples that followed Jesus and became, after Jesus ascended to heaven, one of the apostles that took the gospel message further than Jesus ever took it. But the story with Thomas was, Thomas heard that Jesus had rose from the dead. The other apostles had seen Him, and they come with their stories and their excitement. We saw Him. And Thomas says, I won't believe until I see it for myself. I've got to put my own finger into the nail print. And I've got to feel the wound in the side where I saw that spear go in and the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Then I will believe. And of course, we know the story that Jesus showed up and Thomas had the opportunity to put his finger into the nail print of the hand of Jesus Christ and thrust his hand into the side where the spear had been. And then Thomas fell to his knees and cried out, My Lord and my God. See, the reality is... Catch this. Jesus stayed around after the resurrection for 40 days. The Bible says 40 days after his passion with many infallible proofs. Why did he stick around? Why? Why did Jesus stay around? He had already done what he came to do. He had already taken away the sins of man on the cross. So Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. And in my thinking, the next day... His job's finished. He should return to heaven. He should ascend into the heavens. But He stayed for 40 days. The work's done. What are you doing, Jesus? When you call the plumber out and he finishes the plumbing job, you don't expect him to stay around the house for eight more hours just hanging out, having dinner with you. No, he came for a job. He does the job and then he leaves. But God did the job and stayed for 40 days. The Bible says with many infallible proofs. You know why? Because there were men like Thomas uh, who said, I'm in a little bit of a faith crisis because I saw the nails go in. I saw my dreams shattered. I watched Jesus' lifeblood flow out of his body. And I'm not just going to take the word of somebody else. I've got to have this experience uh, for myself. Jesus said it's greater to believe without having seen. But Thomas said, I want to see. And Jesus said, I can accommodate that. Jesus showed up. And then Thomas became one of the greatest apostles. All the other apostles' ministry was confined to the Roman Empire. But Thomas went beyond the Roman Empire into the nation which we know now as India and took the gospel. There are cities named in India after the ministry of Thomas to this very day because he was an apostle who kept going. You know why? Because he said, I'm not going to let my faith crisis destroy me or drive me away from God, but instead I'm going to say, let me see it for myself. I'm one of those guys that's from Missouri, the show me state. If you're going to tell me that it's there, I want to see it for myself. Come on now. I want to experience it for myself. Gideon was the same way. And maybe I'm a little bit the same way. But I want to tell you that through the midst of the faith crisis, if you'll hold on to the promise of God. If I'd never gone through those sleepless nights of being demoralized in college and wondering if my faith was going to make it, I could never preach what I'm preaching today. And I remember right in the middle of that faith crisis, my father, who was a pastor, had a visiting preacher come through and preach. A man that I respected who had lived for God for a number of years, raising his family in church. 
And this preacher preached a message about when he was a young man and he laid out on a rock before the Lord and said, God, I want to believe you're real, but I'm struggling right now. If you're real, will you show yourself to me? And I remember just feeling like oxygen was coming into my spirit as I realized that going through a faith crisis is not something terrible. It's something all of us have to go through in order to have God's purpose confirmed and His will done in our life. Hey, guess what? I didn't stay in my faith crisis forever. I came through the faith crisis and God was calling me and anointing me and appointing me to reach people and to minister the Word of God even right through my faith crisis. Because I was called to work for God right in the middle of a faith crisis. Amen. Here's an important key. is to go through the crisis... But hold on to your values. Even though your mind is confused, even though you've got a lot of questions, hold on to your values. Because God's favor always rests upon a man that's righteous. And there are too many people that when they face a crisis, what do they do? They go out and they start experimenting with sin and disobedience and things contrary to the Word of God. But I'm challenging somebody to hold on to your values even when you go through the faith crisis See, because Joseph sat in a prison cell, he had received a dream from God. But no doubt, even though we don't read it in the story, I can promise you that Joseph experienced a faith crisis while he's sitting in a prison cell wondering if God's forgotten about him. Amen. Sitting in the bottom of a pit wondering why his brothers would throw him in there and why he would be rejected by the ones who should be protecting him. No doubt uh, Joseph went through faith crises in his experience, uh, but God was positioning him and setting him up. But here's the key. Because of his faith crisis, Joseph, in the midst of his faith crisis, held on to his values. Because when Potiphar's wife came to him and tried to get him to uh, go against his values by sleeping with her, he said, I can't do this and sin against my God. And most of us would say, what do you care about your God? He's forgotten about you. Uh, if you are going through a faith crisis and you said, no, Joseph holds on to his values right in the middle of a faith crisis. And God uses him and God positions him and God directs him. And I want to challenge some people of God to hold on to your values values and hold on to your convictions right when you go through the faith crisis. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Satan is a liar. You are not disqualified because of a faith crisis you went through. In fact, you're more qualified than you were before you went through the faith crisis. Just hold on, man. Come on. Just hold on, brother. Just hold on, sister. Because my, my favorite part of the Gideon story, I love this part of the story because it's so neat. It's in uh, Judges chapter 7, verse 10. This is after Gideon received the confirmation of the fleeces, after God had shown his power. In verse 10, God says to Gideon, he says, it's time to go down now. It says, verse 10, but if thou fear to go down, go thou with fur of thy servant down to the host. And thou shalt hear what they say, and afterward shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. Then went he down. Notice he says, after you hear what they say, your hand will be strengthened. Then he went down with Pharaoh his servant unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. And when Gideon was come, verse 13, when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, behold, I dreamed a dream. 
And lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came unto a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it, that the tent lay along. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, for into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshipped and returned into the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. Let me tell you what happened here. God says, Gideon, the angel says, If you're still scared... If you're still intimidated to go down, I want you and your servant to put on disguises and sneak down into the camp of Midian, the enemy. And I want you to spy on them and listen to what they're saying. And when you hear what they're saying, afterward, your hand will be strengthened. So Gideon and his servant Furah snuck down into the camp of the enemy. This great host, thousands of people, thousands of warriors that Gideon was about to attack with 300 men. He sneaks down into the camp. And there they get close to a tent in the camp of the enemy. And they listen through the walls of the tent. As two men are in there, one man was asleep and he wakes up. And I don't know if his fellow, the other guy in the tent was awake or if he woke him up and said, I just had a terrible dream. Understand... Gideon and Furrah are listening through the walls of the tent. I just had a crazy dream. Oh, what did you dream about? I dreamed that that uh, on the hillside I looked up and there was a great big muffin or a cupcake or uh, a big barley roll up on the mountain that started rolling down the mountain. And when it rolled down the mountain, it rolled into our camp and knocked over a tent so that it laid flat. And the other guy said, let me interpret the dream for you. What's the dream? The dream is that cupcake represents Gideon and his sword. Because God has delivered us, the Midianites, into the hands of Gideon. Gideon and Fur are sitting outside the tent and they're like, did you hear what I just heard? These people are scared of us. The enemy is intimidated by me. And here I am going through this faith crisis. And the devil got me all convinced that God can't use me. In the meantime, the enemy is intimidated by me. I want to tell you right now. Come on now. The devil wants to take your faith crisis and use it to knock your legs out from under you. And there's only one reason he's doing it. Because he is intimidated about what you're going to do for the kingdom of God. When you come through the other side of your faith crisis and embrace the call of God. My brother, you've been through some crisis. 
You've been through some things in your life and the devil's tried to tell you you're not worthy anymore and God can't use you. You know why he would tell you that? Because he is intimidated and fearful about what you're going to do when you come through the crisis on the other side and say, devil, you're not going to use that on me anymore because I've got God's anointing on my life. and God's going to use me in a way. God's going to enable me to reach people that nobody else can reach. God's going to use my witness even of what I've come through. Come on, somebody. Juan, I'm sure you've had some questions. When you first came to God, you liked what you felt and you liked what you experienced, but you didn't understand everything. Didn't understand it at all. Had a hard time embracing some things and believing some things. But guess what? Let me tell somebody this right now. Having faith in Christ Jesus is not about eliminating all questions. If you're going to wait till all your questions are eliminated to take that step of faith, you're going to be waiting for a long, long time. Because faith requires you to step out. Almost like you're stepping out on nothing. I want to tell somebody today that God's been calling you and you've been using your questions. You've been using your uh, uh, lack of certainty in certain areas as a reason to stay put. But there is an anointing of God that He has prepared for somebody who will say, in spite of my questions, in spite of certain elements of my uncertainty, I'm going to pursue after God. Come on, he's calling you right in the middle of your questions, right in the middle of your crisis. There is a call of God. Hey, the devil's a liar. Listen to me, the devil's a liar. Your struggles haven't disqualified you. Your questions haven't disqualified you. It's a part of the process of God preparing you. Come on, I want you to stand up and lift up your hands right now. Hallelujah. Anytime you go through a trial, the devil tries to steal what you got. Understand the reason behind it. He's intimidated by you. Why would God be intimidated by Juan? I mean, I'm sorry, why would the enemy be intimidated by Juan? God's not intimidated by anything. Why would Satan be intimidated by somebody named Juan? who His, his dad's not a preacher and he doesn't come from a background where he has a great theological understanding. and He uh, raised completely different than me. Why, why would the enemy be intimidated by this guy? I'm going to tell you, why would the enemy try to steal his faith and try to run him out (laughs) through questions and through trials? I'm going to tell you why. Because the enemy is intimidated by a man like this right here. The enemy is intimidated by people like you. If you could just hear what the enemy has to say about you when you're not listening. The devil's speaking in your ear trying to convince you that God can't use you. The devil's tried to tell you because of the things in your past or because of this shortcoming or weakness or your background, God can't use That's what he says to you. But when he goes back to his little hangout spot where the other minions discuss, they say, man, I hope that person never gets the truth about what God has for them. Man, I hope they stay fearful. I hope they stay intimidated. I hope they still allow their questions to 
keep them from embracing what God has for them. And I want to tell somebody here today that you're waiting to take that step of faith. Somebody's holding back of responding and receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptized because of questions. And I want to tell you today that God is calling you right in the middle of your crisis. And not everything's going to be figured out. You've got to take a step of faith. You've got to take a leap of faith right now in Jesus' name. Because God says, not only am I going to save you, but I'm going to use you. Not only am I going to wash your sins away, but I'm going to use you to bless other people. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus right now. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. 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 In the name of the Lord. I'm going to open up this altar in just a moment. There's somebody that the enemy has tried to steal your faith. Somebody that the enemy has tried to keep you neutralized. You're listening to me. You didn't recognize it before today, but now you know what's happening. The reason I feel inferior or insignificant or insufficient is because the devil is trying to neutralize me. The devil's trying to keep me hemmed in. But I refuse to listen to the report of the enemy. What he's been saying to me. What I've gone through did not disqualify me. What you have gone through has been part of the process of God qualifying you for the ministry that he has for you. In Jesus' name, let's bow our heads right now. Lord God. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm asking you, sir, today, how long are you going to wait? Ma'am, are you going to keep waiting and waiting and waiting? Or is there something in you that says, I believe, I believe. Like the man said, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I'm going to take this step of faith and I want to receive, God, what you have. I want to walk in your anointing. I want to walk with your power right now. Hallelujah. In the name of the Lord Jesus. If you've never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and you've never experienced the power of God working in your life, you may say, well, I don't understand it all. Hey, man, you don't have to understand it all. But God is calling you. The reason you're here today is because God's been speaking to your heart. The reason you feel what you feel right now is because the Holy Spirit softly and tenderly is reaching to you right now. God wants you to be a champion. God wants you to work for Him. God wants His anointing to be in your life. But at some point, you've got to respond to the call and say, Okay, I know I don't understand everything and I don't have all the questions answered, but I'm going to respond, Jesus. I'm going to let your anointing flow in my life. I'm going to let your will be done in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. In just a moment, they're going to begin to sing. And when they sing, I'm going to ask the ushers to push these uh, first couple of rows back so that there's room for us to gather around the front right here. And we're going to pray together for just a few moments. Uh, and we're going to believe God that if somebody needs the Holy Spirit, they can receive the Holy Ghost. They will receive the Holy Ghost right here and right now. And somebody's going to step into the anointing and the call. And somebody's going to stop letting condemnation keep them from doing and being what God wants them to be. In the name of the Lord, can we start moving up to the front right now? In Jesus' name, come on, people of God. Come on, guests and visitors. We want to invite each of you to come respond for a few minutes in the presence of the Lord to the Word of God and what God is speaking to you.
Hallelujah. Come on, the devil thought he was going to use it to destroy you, but it's actually going to make you better. It's going to make you stronger. In Jesus' name, I want you to pray with one another. Come on, saints of God, let's pray with these that have come forward right now in Jesus' name. Just open up your heart. Let God speak to you right now. Let His encouragement and anointing flow in this place. Lead me, Lord. 